Are you interested in attending a Nine Marks event in your area? Visit www.ninemarks.org forward slash events for more information about our upcoming events, including workshops and conferences. Hi, I'm Ryan Townsend, Executive Director of Nine Marks. Our vision is simple, churches that reflect the character of God. In light of that, Nine Marks exists to equip church leaders with a biblical vision and practical resources for displaying God's glory to the nations through healthy churches. To that end, we pray that this Nine Marks audio message will benefit both you and your local church. Listen, learn, and join the conversation. It's September the 25th, 2014. Uh, I'm sitting here, I'm Mark Dever, I'm sitting here at the Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, and I am here with the fifth chancellor of the Reformed Theological Seminary, my dear brother, Ligon Duncan. Good evening, Mark. Lig, thank you for being here, brother. Uh, our conversation this evening is about a very specific topic that, in fact, this conference that we're in right now is is all about, which is the topic of church membership. Now, is that is that a topic that a, a Reformed Christian should care about? Yes, absolutely. And it's occupied a lot of discussion, in the even in the short history of the PCA as a conservative, Bible-believing Presbyterian denomination, as we've navigated coming out of a culture where there was no church discipline and trying to figure out how do you do this in a, in a setting where Presbyterians used to do churches to discipline and then it just dropped off the map mm. in the 20th century. How do you start doing that again? And so young men in the Presbyterian world are just as interested as you would find in the world of the Southern Baptist Convention where there's a rediscovery of historic Baptist polity mm-hmm. and a desire to do church in a way that the Bible teaches you to do church. Our, our guys are asking the same kinds of questions. So what is church membership? Well, a church membership is a uh, a willing submission to the authority of Christ as it ex- as it is expressed in the local assembly of Christians. So, in in any kind of uh, setting where you're going to have <clears throat> the authoritative preaching of the word and the authoritative administration of the discipline of the church, you have to have an embrace of that on the part of the people who are being shepherded. And so from the earliest days of the church, uh, just as the people of God were called upon to select their elders, uh, the very selection of elders by the people of God indicates that there is a definite people of God who select the elders. Mm-hmm. And so there just there's that reciprocal relationship between the leadership of the church and the membership of the church uh, made up of the people who've willingly submitted themselves to the authority of the ordinances of the church. So when, okay, you mentioned the ordinances. Is church membership simply who is regularly welcomed to the table? At a local church? No, I think that would be a larger, uh, I can conceive at Capitol Hill Baptist Church right now that there would be people that would be regularly a part of the life of the church and who would meet the standards to come to the Lord's table and yet who would not be part of your membership at that time. So membership is a more specific commitment. Uh, on the part of people who are locally gathered into that assembly and they've made certain commitments to one another 
and uh, to the Lord. So, Logan, let's go back to your time at First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi, where you were the senior minister there for 15 years? Uh, almost 18. Almost 18 not, years. Yeah. And there, who would you expect, in the sense of who would you desire, to find in regular communion? So I don't mean occasional, yeah. but regular communion, who was not a member of First Presbyterian Church? Who would I expect to find? So I don't mean I don't mean who's just visiting for that Sunday and you have the Lord's Supper and they they, they right. take it appropriately, but I mean is there is there a category of persons that you would want to see there week after week month month after month taking the Lord's Supper who is not a member of your church? No. Okay. No, and you know I we, we you and I've talked about this a little bit before. I've I've always my dream was that we would have a slightly larger attendance. Then we had a membership. Yeah. And as you remember, when I started, our attendance was significantly lower than our membership. Yeah, our membership right. roles were incredibly inflated. Yeah. Just so we in Southern churches. started Typical. hammering away on those membership roles. And by the time I'd been there for 18 years, we got to the point where our attendance was at least matching our membership. That's now, now that, you know, that's our people are mobile, you yeah. know, so that still represents some people that are there, but you want some visitors who are hearing the gospel sure. and things of that nature. But no, I wouldn't want to see a large regular attendance that hadn't committed themselves to the life of the church or participating in the ordinances. Yeah. Certainly. Yeah. Now, as we're sitting here, I have my Bible, you have your iPad is church membership in the Bible. Yes. Where? Well, I mean, at the, one of the passages that I'm going to look at with you is Acts 20:28, 20, and it's a passage in which um, Paul is exhorting the Ephesian elders to shepherd the flock of God. And flock of God is actually Old Testament language for the Old Testament people of God. And Peter uses it, Jesus uses it, and then, of course, Paul picks it up here. And it's standard New Testament terminology for an identifiable uh, group of people who are gathered under the word and uh that that so that in fact all the things that are are said in that little verse have to you have to have church membership for those things to happen now we could go to we could go to other passages like first timothy 3 where paul is giving timothy instructions on the qualifications for church officers mm-hmm. and and given that timothy is already a church officer you would say, well, why would Paul be giving Timothy qualifications of church officers? Because Timothy's congregation needs to understand that because they're the ones that select the church officers. Mm. And so there are all sorts of back-channel ways that the New Testament testifies to church membership. I think you and I both encounter well-meaning evangelicals who just don't think because there's not a verse mm-hmm. that says you need to have church membership. They're quite happy to view that as a non-negotiable. But the New Testament couldn't function as it does in the local assemblies without membership. Okay, so when you're talking to an earnest young PCA minister or Southern Baptist minister, uh, and they're wrestling with this idea of church membership, they've not really thought about it much, but now all of a sudden they're in a local church and it's right in front of their face. Do you help them to see that it's not optional, or should they think of it as optional? No, they should not see it as optional. It should be, it's, it's something that is part and parcel of their Christian discipleship. You and I both had a lot of fellowship with Anglican brothers, yeah. uh, in, in the U.S. and in England and Australia, South Africa. Uh, that's an interesting conversation we have with them sometimes, and some of the brothers listening to this right now are going to be ministers in Anglican churches, where an official membership role is not something that they have traditionally done. 
What do you what do you tell them to do in that kind of situation? Well, it, is that uh, th- that's an interesting topic. Is that because of their way of using the parish model? I think so. Yeah, they would have an elect. At yeah. least in England, they would have an electoral role in the parish. Yeah. Uh, and friends, if you're listening, you're in an Anglican church. Feel free to write in and inform us. Correct on this. us. Yeah. Uh, but that's been I know in with me in England and South Africa and Australia. Uh, a significant conversation again and again about how those brothers can figure out to do membership in their structure. Right. But anyway, you would tell them they need to because it's not right. optional. Right. Yeah. But that, again, that's, that is part of both Presbyterian and Baptist ecclesiology with regard to the commitment of the life of the local church and, and all of the, all of the ways that the church functions in terms of dis- discipline and governance are dependent upon that kind of a mutual relationship. Yeah. We, we say that um, no one is asked to submit uh, to authority in the congregation who hasn't, an op- hasn't had the opportunity to, um, to select and elect that authority. There's a reciprocal relationship between the governed and the governor, uh, the governed and the, and the governor. And, um, so- you don't want anyone in the analogous position that said a member or a citizen in the District of Columbia is in where he's taxed without representation. Exactly. You don't want yeah. that kind yeah. of as your, as your license plates. As, as they're, they're yes. mandatorily <laughs> made to say. Um, you mentioned Acts 20.28. What about a little earlier than that, the Great Commission, where Jesus says, All authority in yeah. heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, yeah. baptizing them in the name of the Father and the yeah. Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always yeah. to the end of the age. Amen. Would you see church membership implied in there? I do. And I, when I, when I teach the Great Commission, one of the things I, two, two things that I always try and bring out that I think people miss because we most often hear that in the context of a missionary right. uh, sermon at, at a missions conference time is to say one, that the Great Commission is about discipleship. Notice that Jesus says, teach them to obey all that I have commanded. So you haven't done the Great Commission. Until you've discipled. It's, mm. it's a call to disciple the nations. But the, before that, of course, I say, and of course, Jesus is talking to, about doing this in the context of the local church because he says baptizing. Mm-hmm. And where does that happen? It happens in the context of the local church. So absolutely, you see membership entailed in the kind of discipleship that Jesus is asking his apostles to foster. They're to baptize and to teach. If I can turn your your gaze from the learned tomes of Reformed scholasticism out to the Schwermer over here on the left-hand side of the Reformation, way far out on the one side of the Schwermer, even now, there are things going on called spontaneous baptisms. Mm. Have you heard of these things? I have. I have. And I assume this kind of stuff does not even touch PCA land. No. Or RTS world. Because of um, the the way that baptism... um, substitutes as the as the measure of success or growth in certain parts of the evangelical culture and the desire to have as many of those as you possibly can to show that you're actually bearing gospel fruit yeah that we we wouldn't have the same kind of dynamics going on there although numbers of course yeah. affect everybody everybody plays you know you, you want to have certain numbers but that 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 sort of impetus for spontaneous baptism don't you think at least a part of it is because of the way people measure yeah. the fruitfulness or the but i also wanted to just reflect on what you just said about the great commission if the use of those that spontaneous nature right. of baptism is yet one more part of de-ecclesializing it of, of pulling it away right. from the church 
of making it not under the purview of discipleship. Exactly. Yeah. More yeah. just a reflection of an individual's momentary right. thought rather than a part of the teaching, right. catechizing, discipling, yeah. obeying. And which, and, and which is clearly how baptism functioned in early Christianity. You had long periods of discipleship yeah. associated with baptism. Oh, I know. Yeah. It's amazing the way you could grab an infant and just disciple it for years <laughs> until finally, upon personal profession of faith, he would be ready to be baptized. So just to be clear, Ligon, one of our many agreements is that a church needs to have members. Yes. You don't have members, you're not a church. Right. Now, what if somebody's listening to this, let's say, who they're at a Calvary Chapel or they're in a Bible church, right. and they say, look, we don't have formal membership. Are you saying we're not a church? Yeah. Well, I would say at the very least that you're irregular, and, and you're also vulnerable to all sorts of things. Um, one is uh, there's there's no way to hold accountable the leadership in that structure. If there's no church membership, the leadership cannot be held accountable, and that's a spiritually dangerous place for leadership. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we've seen this play out in 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 church after church after church in American evangelicalism where the leaders have no local accountability. We've seen churches where the leaders are only accountable to external bodies, mm-hmm. uh, where the membership cannot speak into uh, what's going on amongst the, the, the whether it's the pastoral staff or whatever it's called. And so th- there are all sorts of practical problems with that. But again, the the main thing is in in the New Testament, throughout there is assumed a, a reciprocal relationship. So if discipline is going to be applied, there has to be a, an identifiable body of people to whom that discipline is applied. Mm-hmm. And the New Testament is all about that from beginning to end. Mm-hmm. So if if a pastor is listening to this and he's saying, "Oh, church membership," I don't know if I'm going to keep listening to this much more. I mean, our church is interested in evangelism. That's what we need to learn about. Uh, I, I think this church membership conversation maybe feels almost anti-evangelistic. Mm. You guys seem like you're about making clear who's not a part of the church, mm. where what I'm trying to do is to get people into the church. Is there a tension in, in the pastor's life between church membership and evangelism or an emphasis on church membership and an emphasis on evangelism? There certainly has been in the last 50 years. I've heard you say many times, whereas the, the motto of the church growth movement was um, – close the back door and open the front door. Uh, so, you know, st- stop the, the, you know, out the back door, the, you know, the drift of people who kind of come in and they go out again and then make it really easy, accessible for people to come in the front door. And that's how you build the local church. And I've heard you say, and actually my, my plan for building the local church is close the front door and open the back door. Yeah. Uh, mean really require the people of God to be and do the things that the Bible asks them to be and do, and then make sure you are clearing off of, if you, if you have roles, make sure you clear off the roles of people who are not that mm-hmm. or are not mm-hmm. doing those things as fast as you possibly can. And then what you'll find out is, A, you actually have a congregation of Christians, mm-hmm. and Christians are interested in sharing the gospel. Mm-hmm. And so, though short-term, you may lose numbers on a piece of paper somewhere, long-term, you're going to have a, a, a gospel church that's concerned for evangelism and is concerned for the church to grow. You want the church to grow, but you want it, there's, there's healthy growth mm-hmm. and there's unhealthy growth, and you want healthy Christians and you want a healthy local congregation. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, in, in thinking about church membership, I think one of the other verses that comes to my mind as a pastor is Hebrews thirteen seventeen, mm. And that accountability, that has to be one of the clearest ones. Obey your leaders, submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Yeah. Uh, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Yeah. And you, you very often quote, is it the John Brown yeah, yeah. quote about that scene? Had enough. I have, I almost always remind pastors of that at ordination services. Yeah. Yeah. But because of that, um, accountability yeah. that pastors have for the members yes. of their church particularly, is there wisdom to having ratio a certain number of elders per number of members? in order to help us shoulder that serious accountability for our church membership? I think historically there's been some kind of ratio that just so that the elders can actually physically do the job. And in, in, in my congregation, uh, we had about 3,000 members, and we had 70 elders in that congregation. And to visit those 3,000 members with with that number of elders would take us over a year wow. to get around. Uh, just, you know, you, you can do the math and break it down. It, it was a lot of work for those elders. Now, you know, I think most PCA churches, like most Baptist churches, are smaller. Yeah. You know, I think the average PCA church is 100 members or something mm-hmm. like this. And most of our churches would be in a range of 100 to 400, and you'd have far fewer elders. But it would be proportionate to the pastoral work that they're asked to do in terms of being involved in the life of the congregation. Yeah, I think one thing that pastors could do to make church membership more meaningful is to have more pastors, more right. elders. If we're using right. those words interchangeably, right. not necessarily meaning the pay of the church. Um, but to have more men that they recognize as meeting right. those biblical qualifications, helping to bear that pastoral right. load. That's right. Yeah. And we had, in our congregation, we had 10 pastors uh, on the staff and then 70 lay ruling elders. And But those elders really took their visitation seriously. And so though the pastors were doing visitation, the elders themselves wanted to be out among the, amongst the flock, not just doing hospital visitation, but actually checking on people and seeing how their souls were. Yeah. We have, right now we have about 930 members and about 20, I think we have 28 elders. Right. And of those, uh, six would be sort of full-time pastors mm. and the other 22 would be other elders. Right. Um, yeah. And I think we, I think we feel like we have our hands full. Right. You know, uh, um, it's interesting having this conversation between a Baptist and a Presbyterian because I think what Baptists and Presbyterians are often known for, some of our differences about membership. Right. So Baptists usually think of ourselves as the regenerate membership people. Yes. So as someone who believes in pedo-baptism, infant baptism, would you understand a Presbyterian church also to practice regenerate church membership? That's good. Uh, obviously, we don't on, on, on Baptist grounds. Uh, and partly that's because of the way that we practice baptism or what you call getting babies wet. <laughs> and, um, and partly that's because of the way that baptism and the profession of faith are separated mm-hmm. in a Presbyterian church. Now, at the level of, at, at the level of the time of profession of faith, what we want is adult regenerate church membership. Now, the, a, a Baptist concern about the way we do that is one, a concern that it's unbiblical too, that it would lead to 
a a mixed or nominal church membership, and that certainly could be the case. But our, uh, I, think I think we've our proven desire. you can have mixed and nominal church memberships <laughs> without infant baptism, brother. But uh, but I appreciate your charity. <laughs> but I mean, I think we're trying to get the same to the same place once you get to the the the, the level adults. of fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, yeah. seventeen years old. We want the church to look the same, even though it's not stri- strictly uh, a regenerate church membership philosophy. Right. So in that sense, uh, for the Baptist pastor listening to this, or Baptistic, the, the, the pastor who doesn't practice infant baptism, uh, what might surprise him to know is that when he's dealing with a, a Presbyterian church, or PCA church, he understands that you're preaching the same gospel, but maybe he didn't realize that for the 85% of people in your church who are adults, you are viewing them and their membership requirements pretty much identically right to the way the baptist brother right. is right the the the, uh, the vows are probably similar uh presumably you have a covenant that that members sign and you have a class in which you prepare people mm-hmm. for membership so that they fully understand what it is that they're committing themselves to, and we would want to do the same kinds of things. So why don't you just walk through very practically. Let's say somebody here wants to join First Presbyterian yeah. Church in Jackson, Mississippi. They're an adult. They're, tw- yeah. they're 22 years old. They've just gotten out of college. They've moved to town. Everybody says this is the church to go to. They've come. They've appreciated the preaching of the ministry there. Yeah. How, do they, how do they go about joining their Christian? How do they go about joining your church? Um, the, the first thing they would do is they would indicate to a pastor or an elder um, after a worship service their interest in church membership. And we would just get basic now, information. Now, do they walk down the aisle at the end of the no, service? The, when I came, um, you, you walked down the aisle at the end of the service. You indicated that you wanted to join and you were admitted immediately at a session meeting after the church service was over. And when when I came to the church, there were there wow. were there were three practices oh, so you that I felt quickly. that were were really damaging to the life of the church, and that was one of them. But hmm. I I I because I was a young man coming into a very settled traditional situation, I did not feel like. I needed to come out of the blocks, changing immediately the way they did membership. But I was really concerned about it. And and so I just said, Lord, I'm not going to open my mouth about this. Ligon, you always look so calm. <laughs> how, how do you look when you're really concerned about something? Probably like I do right well, now. All right, all right. Know. Just checking. Just checking. All right. Keep going. And, um, and, and so it came up one, one night during session meeting. <laughs> One of our very distinguished elders stood up and he said, it is harder to get a Sam's card than it is to join First Presbyterian Church. <laughs> and he said, that just should not be, Amen. brothers. Amen. And the elders talked about that for a while and they turned to me and they said, well, what, Pastor, what do you think? And I said, well, I would not have opened my mouth about this, but now that you've asked me. Um, I, I think we need to change the way that we're doing church membership. And it was a, it was a contentious discussion hmm. initially, but what, what we did and was, Liam, what, what was the bone of contention? Why, why would it be? Well, you know, I, I, one brother who actually loved me well and who's gone on to be with the Lord, um, 
said if if we you know if we if we put any requirements you know for people joining the church we won't have any members at this church it was the same uh-huh. same fear that if there are any standards for membership you're not going to have any membership mm-hmm. it's going to kill the church and of mm-hmm. course it was the opposite um and so what what we do is we we collect the basic information from a person who's desirous of joining and then um the the an elder and a minister makes a visit to that person who wants to join. So they don't come to the church. You actually go we to go, their we home. We go to them. Yeah. Okay. And we'll do an interview, not unlike the interview that you will do with members. We will want to know what their church background has been. We'll want to have a sense of their understanding of the gospel. We'll want to be real clear to them about what we believe and what we teach and what they're going to hear. And then we talk about the process of, of joining and reception in the church and what that involves. So we go through the vows of membership and things of that nature. And then those, that elder and that minister comes back and makes a recommendation, uh, as to, as to whether we should move forward with that person. Then we have a membership class that meets three times a year. And they would go through that membership class that lasts 13 weeks. And then, um, uh, and then at, upon the completion of that. What if I've only attended 12 of them? <laughs> well, we do have, we do have ways that people can make up classes. We record everything and we have handouts for all of the classes and we talk through things. I, I have a, so you really do literally have minister. to have all 13 of those ticked off. Yeah, we want them to go you. through the whole yeah, okay. thing. And then they come before the entire session. 70 men. 70 men. Wow. We meet on a Sunday afternoon. And, uh, we introduce them. And how and often would you meet to do that? We, uh, every two months. So we so meet. six times a year. Six times a year to receive Six times members. a year, the, the doors of the church are open. That's right. <laughs> That's right. And, uh, we would interview them there and we would ask them the, uh, five questions of membership. Uh, um, do you remember Which those? are, uh, do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure? And without hope, save in his sovereign mercy. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? And do you receive and rest upon him alone for your salvation as he is offered in the gospel? Do you now resolve and promise in humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you now submit yourself uh, to the government and discipline of the church and promise to strive for its purity and peace. And do you um, promise to support the work and worship of the church to the best of your ability? So those five questions, everyone has to answer um, in, in order to join the church. And then the session would vote. The elders, as they're gathered, are called the session, and they would vote those people into church membership. So whereas in your setting, your whole congregation would be involved in that. These people are then presented to the congregation the next Lord's Day, but the elders in the Presbyterian church are understood to have them. the keys. Right. Yeah. So uh, just to be clear, that, that meeting six times a year, the, the 70 elders are there, mm-hmm. and... There would be how many people there to it join? Wildly varies. Do you ever Often, have like three? Yeah, I mean, there are times. Do you ever when, have four hundred? No, we. I mean, I've seen times when we've had thirty. Um, and and do they when they're answering those five questions? Do they all answer them at once, or do they each ask them individually? To, we ask them the five questions individually. We'll ask them testimonies 
Also, I mean, sorry, we'll ask the five questions jointly okay. and then the testimonies individually. So obviously. you guys would sit there and hear 30 yeah. testimonies? So you have to really make the meeting longer if you, you must, somebody must have helped them prepare those testimonies yes. to make them brief. Yes. Okay. All right. Okay. So then, then, then it's done. Then they're members of the church. Yeah. Okay. Um, and is that practice then that you helped, uh, first pres do and even maybe improve in some ways? Is that practice important for the gospel witness of a church? It's been hugely important at First Pres. We're we're a downtown capital city southern church, and this would be true if it was First Methodist, First Baptist, First Presbyterian, First Congregational in the South. As you know, nominal Christianity is still alive and well in in a lot of the southeastern United States, and so you know we have we would have had a lot of folks that were attracted to involvement in the church because of the social advantages and uh, even the business advantages of that. So to have people that are clear on the gospel, that are clear on their, what, what a commitment to a local church means has, has a huge impact on the life of the church. So, um, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to veer over toward congregations yeah. for just a moment with an informational question to understand better in the actual receiving of members into the church. Do you understand that to be done by the session or the following Lord's Day yeah, by the congregation. Right, yeah. I'm just curious. Yeah, in the in the Presbyterian setting, it's the session that's receiving them. Yeah. So then, in Second Corinthians two, when Paul is wanting, maybe it's the guy in First Corinthians five. We don't know, but whoever that is, to be brought back in. Right. And he seems to be appealing to the congregation. At least that's how I've right. read it. In chapter two, for them to act. Now, if anyone has caused pain, I'm in Second Corinthians two five. It is not to me, but in some measure not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, the punishment by the majority is enough. Right. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Now, I would read that and see that as a comment on what not just the elders, but the congregation had done. Right. Well, my guess is that has been done differently in Presbyterian history over the last 500 years. That is, there have been times where the congregation has been more involved, Uh and there have been times when the congregation has been less involved. And you would even find diversity on that today in the PCA in terms of the level of congregational involvement. But so, Lee, I'm just curious, you as a Christian reading your your New Testament here, what do you understand to be going on there in Corinth? Right. Uh, I would understand that the whole church is aware of the situation yeah, and obviously. has been informed and that the officers have been taking a lead and engaging. And although that that's brother. never said, you just assume right. that. It's just right. that's the only way things work. Exactly. And so how the exact mechanism of that worked in the local mm-hmm. setting, I have no yeah. idea. The, uh, you know, One way that plays out in a Presbyterian setting might be that when uh, you you may have elders that recommend discipline to the congregation or you may have elders that actually do the discipline mm-hmm. and then report it to the congregation mm-hmm. and, and, so, and just to be clear we yes. would understand the elders couldn't do it on their own but they could we would recommend. act very similarly yes. the elders are the one who do all the right. work they bring it a recommendation right. to the congregation and but then we would understand the congregation right. has to act on that recommendation yeah. and so uh, obviously in in our polity 
you know, I would, I would say, well, what could be happening there is that latter thing is happening. Mm-hmm. The elders are actually taking the action and reporting it to the congregation. But as I said, there's a diversity of practice on that in Presbyterianism. Itself. Well, and what, for, for me, I'm, what sort of colors my glasses in reading this, I'm sure along with other things, is Matthew 18, right. where Jesus says, take it to the church. The church. Yeah. The ecclesia. Right. And the lack of a mention of elders there. Right. Or elders here. Right. And the way in 1 Corinthians 5, the, the whole congregation seemed to have been blamed for. So I just see throughout all of that a lack of explicit mention of the elders. And it seems particularly from Matthew 18 as if Jesus has clearly left a responsibility for the membership with the membership. Mm-hmm. Now I also understand independently other texts like Acts 20, Make it very clear the elders have a very serious relationship, Hebrews right. 13, or rather responsibility, Hebrews 13. But that there is also responsibility that the congregation bears. It's not optional for some to choose to take or not. That even if this Methodist church or this Anglican church or this Calvary chapel or this Presbyterian church or this poorly taught Baptist church, even if they don't understand the congregation has that responsibility, in Jesus' eyes they do. Thoughts on I th- that I think, more aggressive I think in reading? Gen- in general, I think Presbyterians will read across those texts yeah. so that the text, like the Hebrew 13 text, yeah. that you that we will typically blend those texts yeah. in light of previous Jewish practice in the synagogues and the role of and elders. And that's how you'd read the Matthew 18 right. one, as more assuming the elders are in the lead right. in that ecclesia. Right. Okay. Okay. Um uh, is uh, is the meaning of membership different, do you think, in a, a Presbyterian church rather than a Baptist church because of this distinction we're drawing out? So, for example, when I'm, you know, when, when, when in those vows, when you're promising to, is it submit to the governance of the church? Right. We would also have an equivalent statement, but it would be meant under the Lord, ultimately to the congregation, right, uh, and the congregation's decisions. Right. So, what we understand we're doing when we're coming into membership is we're making a covenant with God, right, and each other, not just the leaders of the church. So that um, you know, the, in this room, while we're listening to this interview, there are a number of guys who are interns or on staff at Capitol Hill Baptist Church. We would understand that we are in a, a covenanted relationship before the Lord that has a, a responsibility then incumbent upon us for each other, even for those here who are not elders, that those people who are not elders but are members of the church, they then have some obligation and responsibility to those other members of the church that they don't have for other Christians. Hmm. Thoughts on that yeah, subtle I, difference? I, think, I mean, I, the, the, I think, the, by the way, the one another commands of the New Testament are another huge uh, witness to the importance sure. of church membership, yeah. because I don't think sanctification can be done apart from that corporate reality in the New Testament. It's, it, and it's dominantly the local body that's in view if you're going to grow in grace. So I, I would want to really emphasize that. Now, does that play out differently? Yes. If you... If, if you are actually going to the congregation for these kinds of decisions as opposed to the elders making them and announcing that, yes, there's going to be a difference in how that looks at the local setting and what it means to say that you're submitting yourself to the authority of the elders. So there are, there, there are distinctions in that to be sure, but I think that the aspiration 
of congregation members having mutual obligations towards one another and responsibilities, it, I would I would affirm that wholeheartedly. That's not just prudent, but it's biblical. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, what about some situations that I'm sure you you've run into, and I've certainly talked with guys about, where they say, "Look, we just don't need formal membership." Yeah. Maybe it's it's a place where the church is persecuted. Yeah. Maybe where it's uh, they meet in very small numbers. They yeah. know who each other are. Uh, maybe it's just a long tradition on the West Coast in the United States where membership has just not been done in a formal yeah. way, and yet the, it's in a fairly stable community. They know who the regular attenders are and not, and they just insist for whatever reason that formal membership is not needed. Thoughts on that? I can't conceive of any situation much larger than 30 where you could make that argument. You think uh, if you're talking about 15, though, you could make that argument? Well, but I, what I would say is if you had 15, you've got membership. Yeah. <laughs> you're just not calling it that. Mm-hmm. You know, you may not have a role that you're writing down, but you've actually got membership if that's the way you're really functioning. But once you get much larger than that, I mean, it's, it is very difficult without any sort of formal instrumentality to, to, to maintain the kinds of dynamics that we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. And I, so I could see 15 people in Iraq somewhere that are really bound to one another and they're going to go through it thick and thin no matter what's happening mm-hmm. in the culture. And maybe they don't have a, a clerk and, uh, and roles, but they know all, all 15 of them are in on that. Now, as soon as things are in a normalized situation, I'd want them to have those formal, mm-hmm. uh, structures. But so the still, church in California and Texas, you would like them to have. Oh, absolutely. You think that they should. Absolutely. There's nothing that, that why, why in the world would they not want to do that? I, I, I don't, I don't understand a rationale for, for not wanting to do that. Let's say that, uh, you're back at First Pres and you have people who are attending regularly and they will not join. Hmm. What do you do with regular attenders yeah. who are not members? Um, we have. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking of a couple right now uh, that that have been attending for a while, and um, and before I left, I had had conversations with them about the significance of of membership in a local congregation. They had a special situation, which I'll actually ask you about off air and, <laughs> and get your advice and counsel on. But thankfully, we didn't have a lot of that over time. Um, and I think part partly that was because of the kind of preaching and the kind of ministry that we had at our church and the kind of people that were being attracted to the ministry because they, they knew they were coming to a church that had a high view of church membership. Mm-hmm. And so there was a, there was a sense that, you know, we really either need to commit ourselves here or we just need to move on and go somewhere else and commit ourselves. So I, I haven't had a lot of that, but I think evangelicals need to be aware of that. When, uh, let me, let me tell on myself in another place, in another Presbyterian church where I served, they literally had created a a non membership category called friends of the church mm-hmm. and when the pastor that I worked for came came in, he sat down with the elders he said i don 't want friends of the church, I want friends of jesus <laughs> and they're, and they 're called members you know and so he had a he had an all out battle because they had a membership category and they had a friends of the old, church category I found an old membership directory for Capitol Hill Baptist Church Metropolitan Baptist Church as it was then. And they had, you know, this long list of members. And in the back, they had a list of adherents. Adherents, wow. they were called. 
who well you know in Scotland you had that category as well mm-hmm. in Presbyterianism because of people who were um, uh, once again the perils of infant baptism they were baptized but then didn't they had the- never made a profession of faith mm-hmm. uh, if you had if you had um, sat down and had a membership interview, chances are 80% of them, you'd say, these people know the gospel, they trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, he's offering the gospel, and they didn't feel worthy to come to the Lord's table mm. because of Highland mysticism. Mm-hmm. And so they would be kept on the rolls as adherents. Mm. They were there every Sunday, they were there under the preaching of the word, but they never came to the Lord's table. Oh, and you read the painful. 19th century yeah. Presbyterians just fighting against that mm-hmm. uh, in the practice of the church. But that adherent thing that you're sort talking about. Sort of the about, opposite of yeah. Solomon Stoddard and company. In right. England. Oh, yeah. 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 Huh. Um, do you have, do you think you have to practice corrective discipline in order for your church's membership to be meaningful? I think if, if there's no corrective discipline, um, I I think that it really undermines the claims of the church. I've seen this happen in my own setting where, where, where when corrective discipline was not taken, it undermined the credibility of the preached word Mm. and of the leadership of the elders in, in the church. Mm. Um, Because even in this world, where there's more freedom and more privacy than there might have been in a small town in New England 300 years ago and everybody knew everybody else's business. Um, you know, there are things that happen that people know and they notice whether the church does anything about it. So though most of the church's discipline is indeed informal with members um, not only encouraging one another and taking responsibility to exhort one another and the office of the church through nurture and admonition and, and, uh, and, and, and less formal measures are administering discipline in the life of the church. There's got to be corrective discipline. It just in a home, mm-hmm. you know, parents, there's going to be corrective discipline mm-hmm. in a home. Mm-hmm. And it's not that that's the majority of what you do, yeah. but boy, does it come at crucial points. Yeah. And, um, you know, one of my favorite stories from, I, I was in a town called Yazoo city and um th- there was a man there who this was in australia <laughs> in mississippi in the delta of the gateway to the delta in mississippi and there was a man who had uh had 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 an affair and left his wife and the the elders went after him and um they they took him through the steps of discipline and he was eventually excommunicated and um that that process of discipline is what brought him to repentance and back to his wife and his wife accepted him mm. back and and they credited Crazy the God. church's willingness to confront him mm-hmm. with what the lord used in his life to bring his marriage back together mm. uh his son is a deacon in my church now is one mm. of the finest young men that you would ever know mm. Um, and you know, now I, I want to say to pastors, yes, Mark and I could tell horror stories too about bad reactions, but you know, sometimes when you see those things happen, it's worth all the pain elsewhere when you know, this is what the Lord used to bring that person back. So if there's never any of that going on, um, I, I think it undermines the credibility of what's being preached. 
So your preaching is part of your church discipline, and the discipline is discipling, it's right. teaching. So that's formative discipline. But right. then there's the subset that's corrective, and that right. could be you correcting opinions by contradicting somebody verbally or onto some kind of church right. censure, ultimately even to exclusion from membership right. as an act of discipline. Right. You know, we could call it excommunication, where where they're no longer allowed to come to the Lord's table. Right. And, you know, again, I I find a lot of people today that are actually looking for a church that will do that. I mean, I had a, a very wealthy man in our community that came to us and went through the membership process. And at the very end of the membership process, he said to us, so if I cheat on my wife, you're going to kick me out of the church? And I said, yeah. And he said, Wow. I want to join this church. <laughs> but, okay, and but, it was not what I was expecting. No. I thought, well, I got him all the way up to this point, you, you, and he was going to bail out. But, Ligon, honestly, you were there 18 years. Did that ever happen? Yeah. Sadly, did you, did it you did. ever kick anybody sadly, out of did. the church? Yeah. It did. And so it you did. would understand that's not the congregation, but that was the session. Right. Right. So the session did sometimes vote to exclude people right. for unrepentant sin. Right. Huh. And fruit from that? I mean, well, I mean, that's, you know, I, I, I wish I could say that I had seen glorious recoveries. Mm-hmm. Like maybe um, Second Corinthians 2 is. Yeah. But I think more often it has been a sobering of the members of the significance of sin and of of what it means to be members of a local congregation. Mm-hmm. And that members have felt like, wow, you know, we're in a church that really cares about this. Now, the way we have our standards kind of always before us is our church covenant, Mm. which guys, which which were taught in the membership classes, which um, actually hangs on on the wall of the church, which is there. We we read it together before we take the Lord's Supper each month. Uh, The members of the church stand. We also stand and reaffirm it before we have a members meeting, so six times a year. is there, is there anything like that in a Presbyterian church? Well, we, the, the members don't, they, the only things they have to affirm are those five questions okay. of membership. We teach the Westminster standards in class mm-hmm. and explain that the teaching and preaching they're going to hear in the church is going to come from this perspective. And, you know, all the things that you would expect people want to add, they, you know, half of the membership class wants to ask about baptism because we have so many people that are from Baptist backgrounds. Mm-hmm. And so they want to ask about that. Predestination is always a question they want to mm-hmm. ask about. But we do say this is where the church is coming from theologically and this is what's going to be taught in pulpit and classroom. We do not require our membership to subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith. Only the officers have to subscribe to the Westminster Confession. And that has actually, because of your church covenant structure, that's, it, it's, Presbyterians in the PCA have been talking for the last five years, do we need to have some kind of a minimal theological affirmation hmm. that that members make beyond those five questions hmm. uh, because you've got that in your church covenant well we have and, a statement of faith yeah yeah so they affirm the statement of faith yeah. and they sign it and separately yeah. they sign the statement the, the church covenant the statement of faith is what we believe it's our credenda the church covenant is our and, agenda and, what and we will do is your statement of faith the new hampshire yeah and and again the the new hampshire confession gives enough 
breadth that you can have brothers and sisters in good conscience who might have some theological Mm -hmm. differences with the Mm -hmm. Westminster Confession, but you feel like, boy, this person is person who's really ready to be a member yeah. who would be excluded if we used the Westminster oh, yeah. Confession as yeah. a statement of faith. Well, that's why my, and my so, Reformed Baptist brothers who use the 1689 for membership, right. in my mind, I think that's that's too tight a document right. to use for church membership. Right. So that that's why people in the PCA have been saying, do we need to have something like a statement of faith yeah. for members? Probably uh, not like the 1967. Definitely not the 67 confession, but the, because there would have been a time where you could assume that a person that wanted to unite to a Westminster confession of faith preaching Presbyterian church would be in some semblance of theological agreement with that. And we, we live in such a yeah. world of flux now. There are more and more people saying, Maybe there needs to be a statement of faith along with those vows of membership. Well, for anybody listening to a Baptist church, we certainly found that statement of faith and the church covenant both extremely useful documents. If you don't have a statement of faith you agree with, you don't have a church covenant you agree with and you intend to live with uh, in obedience to it, you, you are taking out of your hands two simple tools that churches for 500 years have found extremely useful in right. shepherding the flock. Right. So I would encourage you to look into statement of faith and a church covenant. Another just practical pastoral questions. Um, somebody asked, what issues should you not have in the statement of faith? Oh, lots of them. Um, anything that you can disagree on well and still have a local church, uh, it's probably okay to leave out. So theological essentials for salvation, uh, certainly material and formal principles of the Reformation, authority of Scripture, vicarious atonement, um, and then essentials for having a church, things you must agree on in order to have a church, uh, membership, polity, complementarianism, um, but a lot of other matters you can probably leave off. And that's probably a good conversation for your church leaders to have. Be good for them to, to sort through the importance of different issues theologically. It's a very healthy conversation. And, and it, that's not unrelated to the the statement that you made about the 1689, drawing the boundaries pretty tight. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you, well, you, even your presbyteries, brother, you, 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 you have more and less strict subscription. Right. So the fact that you even have all that content, right. you, you don't, from presbytery to presbytery, they don't all it interpret varies. it the same. It varies. Yeah. But it, the, you know, the, the practical thing you've pointed out before is, you know, you can have someone who believes in... Uh, penal substitutionary atonement, who struggles with some of the some of the aspects of particular redemption, mm-hmm. uh, and yet who has a thoroughly orthodox yeah. doctrine of the atonement. Otherwise, you you wouldn't you wouldn't want to draw the line on that kind of a person and Certainly exclude not. them from church. Membership. I'd be quite happy so. to have them as an elder. Yeah, Jonathan Lehman wants to say something. Um, and why don't you just do it in a microphone, Jonathan, so that uh. It's just easier that way. Sure. I'd love to hear both of your reflections on, if we were to bring, say, Leslie Newbig into the table and think about sort of post-Christian movement of parts of the country, what would be the dynamics for pastors, say, in southern states where nominalism still flourishes versus pastors in northern urban states where secularism still flourishes? How does that change membership dynamic is it more essential in nominal states to mm. practice some of these formal structures because again nominalism flourishes is it easier 
in secular locations, but still critical? Like, how, just how does that dynamic affect how we think through some yeah, of these? Really I want to hear what you would say since you formulated that question, and then we can also talk about it. Because <laughs> you must have something in mind. Well, I, I assume it's more critical and in certain respects in a nominal Christian place for the sake of clarifying church and world when it's so muddied and blurry. So in Jackson, Mississippi, there's a certain uh, importance to do it there, I would assume. Whereas if I were to go to New York City, I'm pastoring a church in New York City. In some ways, it's going to be easier, but I also want to say it's still critical. There might be a temptation to blur those lines for other reasons, to appear right. attractive to the world. Right. And, and, and in that regard, it's it's different, but still critical. Yeah. For the sake of saying to the world, hey, we're the church and we are different yeah. and we mean to be. Ligon, I, I both uh, agree with Jonathan's question and the insightful way he answered his own insightful question. <laughs> um, do you have any insight to add to what Jonathan has said? Well, I would just say I think I do think that it's it's important for both of those settings and that both of those settings in different ways could face temptations to blur the lines for different reasons. One for the sake of attraction and one for the sake of acceptability. And, um, and, and so I think it's, you know, we hear people talk about, uh, you know, the, the, their mode of growing the church is, um, is you have to establish belonging, uh, or, or, yeah, belonging before. before you can believe. Yeah. And, and in that kind of a setting, in the name of this sort of missional outreach to a, a post-Christian culture, you end up blurring that line then. About that thinking what? with the best of motives that that blurring will be helpful. Absolutely. That in the end, it's going to eventuate. In, Maybe they'll in come in in the good. twilight when they right. wouldn't come in in the blazing glare of the distinction. And so it's a, but it's a similar dynamic in a nominal culture where you're, where you're just trying to get along. And, uh, you're trying to minimize differences, uh, amongst Christians for the sake of acceptability. So it's two, the tugs are in two different directions, but they, they can have an equally pernicious effect on the witness of the church because the more distinct the church is in the culture, the clearer the gospel witness to the culture. And, and the, and the less distinct the church is from the culture around it, uh, the more difficult it is for you to say, we're, you know, we're not you on this. There's something different going on here. So I just want to, before we're getting close to being out of time, I want to ask a few sort of bottom shelf yeah. pastoral questions. How long can you have one of your members living someplace else before they need to join a church there? Uh, we don't have a fixed policy on that at First Presbyterian and Church. And we don't at Capitol Hill Baptist. Uh, at at um, at First Presbyterian City, um, the elders ask members to to please, within six months, tell them where they have joined when they moved away, and if they now you make obvious exception, exceptions, I assume, for military service. For undergrads at college. Right, exactly. But people who've actually moved Mm -hmm. away from the area and have gone somewhere else. uh, And then if they didn't contact them within that six-month period, the elders would then make contact with them and find out what they were doing in terms of associating with a local body. So they had a mechanism in place. And I would have loved to have gotten to that place where we actually had a mechanism in place 
to to help encourage that. Now we did start writing. We we did build a mechanism of a letter going out to folks when mm-hmm. they were leaving, and then a letter checking on them. Uh, you know, through just the process of mailings and stuff, you could find out a lot. When stuff gets sent back, then mm-hmm. then we would that that would prompt us to check. Okay, check their you, Facebook yeah, exactly. Page. <laughs> well, at least to try and track them down. Um, but we didn't have a, a fixed policy. Uh, on that. Now, one of the things that did happen in our sort of nominal Southern culture is you would have someone who would move to Florida to live with Susie, her daughter, and Bob, her son-in-law, but she would want to be buried in Jackson, Mississippi, and she would leave her name on the roll of First Presbyterian Church so that she could be buried at First Presbyterian Church when she died. This is the you mean like under the pews, seventies or eighties, like a church in Scotland. Well, actually, just be buried, you know, in a church service. Uh, we don't have a we don't have a cemetery. cemetery or anything like that. And so we would encourage people: we will do your funerals, but join a local <laughs> church yeah, in yeah. Florida with Bob and Susie while you're yeah. there. You, you call us up; we will do your funeral. You know, when when it comes time. But in the South, there you do have those kinds of oh, yeah. associations that make people want to keep their names on rolls when they're not there. Okay, a second. I've got four yeah. of these. A second, kind of bottom shelf pastoral practice question: How can non-members serve in First Pres? Um. I, I don't know that we encourage non-members to serve per se um, at First Pres. I'm sure that there are people who uh, might get involved in in things like ushering or something like that, who are in the process of membership or something like that. But normally, serving at First Pres is something that members do. Yeah, same at CHBC. Yeah. You would need to be a member. If you're not a member, you could you can certainly give money. Yeah, certainly, <laughs> certainly pray for us. But you couldn't really do any kind of organized yeah. service. That's yeah. just for members. Yeah. When people try to volunteer, we do have them volunteer. Right. We say, well, we'd actually rather you give attention to those things that would cause you to join the church or would yeah. stop you from That's where we think, for your own soul's sake, your attention right. needs to be right now, rather than trying to that's service good. in some other way. Uh, number three, can megachurches have meaningful membership? It's harder. Because you pastored for, a megachurch. It was the size the of a megachurch, mega although, although, you know, culturally and, and, and sociologically it doesn't fit some of the categories of a megachurch. Numerically yeah. it does. But, uh, because of the tradition of the church, we had some protections against some of the things that happen in a megachurch environment. And, I'll, and, and here's one of them. We had a very large megachurch in the Jackson area, f- pastored by a, a gospel-loving, Bible-believing, Bible preaching man that grew from 65 to 12,000 over about a decade. And during my sabbatical, I went to visit that congregation. And one of the things I realized is people were going there to hide. The, the the reason they went there is they went there to hide. They wanted to blend in. They wanted to be anonymous. They they and so in that kind of setting, uh, not only is it hard to have meaningful membership, it's nigh unto impossible. So I do think if you have a very large congregation, the larger it is, the more difficult it is. Last one: any wisdom on resignations. Uh, how does somebody resign from membership at First Press? Now, obviously, we've mentioned corrective discipline. If somebody's excommunicated, uh, they could be put out of membership entirely. Uh, someone who dies is clearly out of membership at First Press. Right. 
I guess if you get a letter from another we church, do. you could transfer to right. another PCA church or there, congregation. There are, there are three ways that people can join First Presbyterian Church, and thus three ways that they can join another congregation in relation to us. They, they can join by profession of faith. They can join by reaffirmation of faith. Or they can join by transfer of letter. Now, all three of those require the vows of membership to be taken, but the significance of that is if someone were coming to First Presbyterian Church from, I'm not even sure whether Capitol Hill Baptist does letters. Most, a lot of Baptist churches don't do letters of membership to, to uh, any other church, but, but, you know, if, if someone were moving from a Presbyterian church to First Pres, they would move their letter of membership, yeah. and it was the, it's a Presbyterian way of making sure that they're not on the rolls at two churches. It's done among Baptist churches and also between Baptist churches. Um, but, but what, on the resigning side, I think is less straightforward. It perhaps. is less straightforward because of the reasons we were just saying, but if they do a transfer of letter to another congregation, sure. then right. that's, that's real simple. Well, what if though somebody at First Pres Resigns to join, say, a PCUSA church. Hmm. Uh, in, so they write you a letter, right? And they say we're joining, you know, this right. PCUSA congregation. There, there have been times when we have not transferred letters. What does that mean? Well, it would mean if we question the status of the body that they are joining, yeah. uh, then we would not transfer that. I mean, we've, we've had people that have gone off and joined what we were, what we would consider cult groups. Like a Jehovah's Witness group. And, uh, I've never had that, but I've had things that were almost as strange. And we've, you know, in that setting, we just explain we're, we're going to transfer a letter. We'll remove you from the rolls. But uh, now, is that, how is that removal from the rolls different than an act of discipline? It is an act of discipline. Ah, and is it the same thing as excommunication? Functionally, yeah. Uh huh. So, so if somebody were going to go to a PCUSA church, it would depend on what the PCUSA church was. Now, I very much appreciate that congregational answer coming out of your lips. Uh, thank you for that gift at the end of the day, Ligon. I'd, I'd love to see those little daisies of insight growing up. But I guess what I wonder is, brother, I understood the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America had church in the singular. And therefore, they understand themselves to be an ecclesiastical institution which has members and authority and responsibility in those members' lives. And they have standards as a whole that they understand to be the standards of the church. They have things they affirm about marriage that they would understand to affirm as a whole church. So I I well appreciate a gospel preaching First Pres Houston, PCUSA, that was a difficult vote recently. Right. Um, But I guess I'm wondering with the Presbyterian polity, you must accord some significance to something that a connectional denomination does as a whole. Right. So if the PCUSA or the United Methodist Church um, affirms something that you think that the session at First Press thinks is unbiblical and really even anti-gospel, how is that different than somebody joining a cult? Well, um, again, I'm not sure that we have applied this consistently but uh, the, the concern is that in the local congregation that the marks of the church are present. 
Now, does the wider denominational situation matter? Yeah, I mean, of course it does. I mean, we, you, you and I saw this in both the Church of England and in the Church of Scotland oh, yeah. while we were there oh. in, in not Tragically in Tragically this year in the Church of Scotland. Right. Yeah. And, and so, you know, that has led to fragmentation in, in both of those communions. And so we would want to recognize that state of flux. Uh, there are a lot of folks that are coming out of the PCUSA. Uh, there are a lot of folks that are still in the PCUSA that are but, but let's say, solid at the local just level. To, to, to let you dodge this one, um, <laughs> let's just say that someone is joining a PCUSA church that strongly advocates same-sex marriage. Hmm. What does the session at First Pres do? Well, uh, they have written you a very yeah. polite letter of resignation, this right. member of your congregation, saying they're joining this other church. Ironically named Westminster Presbyterian, right? Say. Right. Well, I obviously I can't speak for the session now. No, uh, I'm, I'm just I'm guessing the, what would I'm not yeah. the pastor there. But what if, would such if, a church do? If if a person, what I would what I would recommend to a local session, yeah, is that if if you saw that in a local congregation that a person was transferring to, yeah, it would be indicative not only of that serious error, but a whole range of other serious errors. Um, and that it would not be wise to transfer a membership in that in that setting. So that means that you, the session, might then refuse to transfer that membership. Well, in the there actually have been court cases in the PCA about that, and the 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 PCA has has taken the position. Jonathan Lehman, those would be interesting to read. That if if a if if a person wants their name removed from the rolls, their name has to be removed from the rolls. But the 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 session can view that as an act of discipline, and you know whether there's a case in process there mm-hmm. or not. Normally, we would not want to administer excommunication without some sort of process. Sure, but but you know, I think what would happen in that setting if a if a if a member just unilaterally said, "I want my name removed from the rolls," the elders may may say, "Well, we'll remove it from the rolls, but we'll view that as an act of of discipline." Would would you all understand Hebrews ten twenty five to mean that it would be a sin to not be in regular attendance at a gospel preaching church for a Christian? Absenting oneself from yep. the assembling yep. of the yep. brethren. Yep. Yes, I mean I, I th- you and I've talked about this over the years, and I say it in in my ecclesiology class all the time that if we would just attend to the matter of faithful church attendance, we would we would wipe out ninety five percent of. Of our church, so brother, this problems. last Sunday night, our, our congregation just excommunicated someone for non-attendance. Wow. Um, we warned the congregation yeah. two months prior, yeah. so the congregation Matthew eighteen had two months to work on yeah. it. You know, we told it to the church, hmm. and then we asked the church to then conclude its deliberations, uh, and we recommended that they be excommunicated wow. as an act of discipline, excluded from membership. Wow. Now, just to be clear to anybody listening, excommunicated doesn't mean we think we're damning anybody. It doesn't mean we think we're cutting them off from the means of grace. They've cut themselves off by their known non-attendance. Right. We would love them to attend our church. Right. They're, they're in no way is like shunning. You know, we, right. we want them to attend. But it's just saying that they have ceased to present the uh, minimal requirements to justify their claim to follow Christ. Right. Uh, in this case, particularly, in attending church. Yeah. 
And that would not have been unusual in either Baptist or Presbyterian environments 100 yeah, years ago. Yeah. It has become unusual in the last 100 years. Look, and we've talked for over an hour about church membership. I've got more questions. I need to stop. But I should just say, brother, you look great. How's RTS doing? <laughs> so this is a little gossipy yeah. part at the end. Guys, feel free and leave and tune out. But just for a few minutes, we're talking in September 2015. Lig, you're installed next week? I am installed officially. Next week. Yes, officially. Uh, but you've been doing the job for a since year. Since September the first of last year, officially and full time since January yeah. the first. Yeah. I'm, I miss the life of the local congregation terribly. It was like dying a death hmm. to leave uh, First Pres. I'll miss it for the rest of my life until I close my eyes the last day. But I feel like I am where the Lord would have me serve. And I'm able to help pastors and local churches and foster the uh, continuing uh, expansion of faithful, Bible-believing, gospel-preaching, uh, doctrines of grace, Christianity that we see happening all around us that we've met through T4G and other things like that. And so uh, I, I, it gives me great joy to support the faculty that I have in doing that and uh, to help the church that way. So I'm, I'm very encouraged with how things are going, though I miss the local church. Tell us one fun thing about RTS and how we'd be praying for RTS right now. Well, I mean... Uh, uh, I mean, we certainly benefit from their ministry in thank Washington. You. Thank you thank for that. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, an, an exciting thing about RTS um, is, is this. Uh, I'll tell you a quick story. The largest Muslim country in the world is Indonesia. And uh, a very wealthy Indonesian businessman was discipled by an RTS uh, graduate. And uh, having come to faith in Christ has devoted his fortune to, um, to building Christian schools, uh, Christian hospitals, hmm. uh, to assisting uh, pastors plant churches. And uh, there are um, there are Christian churches, reformed churches, um, hospitals, schools, universities being planted all over Indonesia. Uh, and Rick Canada, my predecessor, mm -hmm. is his right hand man. Mm. And um, it, that just gives me joy every day to know mm. that in the largest Muslim country in the world, mm -hmm. the Reformed faith is nah, is being spread all over the place. And because this man is wealthy, he's not looking for American money. He's looking for people that are willing mm -hmm. to go to the mission field. And they don't even have to speak any of the Indonesian languages. They can speak in English because he does all of his primary education in English. So they're looking for pastors, chaplains. Um, hospital administrators, mm. school teachers, Bible teachers, professors, and um, and it just gives me joy that we can be a little part of that going on around the world. Hmm. Lincoln, it's always a joy to talk to you. As formidable as the Presbyterian arguments are for pedo-baptism, which is frankly not much. Um, <laughs> Your, the fruit of the Holy Spirit's work in your own life, brother, is a far more formidable argument. Uh, you're a dear man. I'm always delighted to see some of God's work in and through you. Thank you for sharing this time with us. Thank you, Mark. It's a joy to be with you. Thank you, friends, for listening to this Nine Marks audio message. We encourage you to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. 
For more audio messages and other free resources, we invite you to visit us online at www.9marks.org or call us toll-free at 1-888-543-1030. Nine Marks exists to equip church leaders with a biblical vision and practical resources for displaying God's glory to the nations through healthy churches.